0: This is Greg Hall, and welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is episode 79, and I'm calling it REST API, and that stands for After Pentecost Instruction. But before we get into the biblical text, let me just give you a little background because it might seem a little strange. In the world of computers, REST API actually has a meaning— It stands for, and let me just try and get this right, Representational State Transfer Application Programming Interface. As I understand it, it's an architectural style and a set of principles for designing networked applications. So in web development, REST, that's Representational State Transfer is widely used to create efficient APIs, application programming interfaces, that enable uh, communication between different software systems. However, when it comes to the concept of REST in the Bible, REST API takes on a different meaning. Because while many studies focus on the Old Testament's teaching on REST, or maybe Jesus' interactions with the idea Not many delve into the after Pentecost instruction that's given in the Bible regarding rest. Understanding the instruction after the events of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is important because most people consider the events of Acts chapter 2 to be the marker of the birth of the modern church. The instructions given before this event, Acts 2, we're for a world that couldn't fully comprehend the death, burial, the resurrection, the ascension of the Messiah. And as the Messiah, Jesus, he is the ultimate provider of true rest. So, studying the New Testament's rest API after Pentecost instruction, that's the ideal conclusion to a comprehensive study on the topic. But interestingly, many books written on the topic of Sabbath completely failed to integrate Biblical REST API into their theology. Like I said earlier, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. In real time, it's been a couple of weeks since my last episode. But I have been busy. I've talked about it in the past. I've got an Israel trip coming up next February. I've also started a new Facebook group. And this is going to hit everybody that's maybe over 45 in my listening audience in a different way than it would somebody under that age because I am told that the younger generation is no longer on Facebook. Is that true? Is that really true? I think it is. But here's the reason I'm on Facebook. Number one, all my my friends are still on it. (laughs) Number two, there are things you can do on Facebook that you can't do on some of the other platforms. And groups are one of them. I mean, there may be other platforms that have groups, but I'm not on them. As old as it is, as irrelevant as it is for many people, Facebook does have value in one area. And I found that out this last week. It's in the groups function. And the idea is you can gather a bunch of people around a certain topic and give them just a place to discuss and interact with thoughts on a certain topic or in a certain area. So for instance, in the theological world, I'm the member of two groups the N.T. Wright Discussion Group, and the Tim Mackey Discussion Group. Both of these people have well established themselves within the theological framework of our modern day. And as I went and searched, I didn't find a group specifically for a lot of other theologians that I follow. One in particular that really helped me get my book edited and helped me through the publishing process, Dr. John H. Walton. So, This last week, I started on Facebook, the John H. Walton discussion group. And that was great because then the first thing I do, you know, I go through my 1,500 contacts or friends and I start inviting people that I think might have a clue who John Walton is. Turned out 89 of my 1,500 friends got an invite. And I'm not saying 89 of my friends actually know who John Walton is. I'm just saying those are the people that might have a chance to know who he is. But then I went into these other discussion groups and I just posted really briefly that I was starting a group for John H. Walton and gave him the link. And then the first three days I had over 200 people join my group and we're well over 200 people now and we're heading towards three and it's just going to be a fun time. So if that sounds inviting to you at all, and that's a big if, because that means you'd have to be on Facebook But if you're still on there, you can go search in the upper left hand corner, John H. Walton discussion group. You're going to find us and just click that button and I'll let you in the group and you can be a part of the movement (laughs) that is just taking off like crazy. 200 people, like I said, unbelievable. Now, with that said, after I established that group, I contacted John and I asked him, hey, if I got some people from the Facebook group to give me some questions. Would you ever think about maybe coming on the podcast and answering a few of them? His response was, in theory, that would work. (laughs) And so I guess in theory, he might be a guest on the show uh, near the end of next month. And if you have a question that you'd like to propose, you can just go to the Facebook group or just use the contact tab on one of my websites. So I've been busy, and that's why we haven't had an episode for a couple weeks, but I'm excited to get going on this next set of three, maybe four. We might stretch it into four, a little series here on the book of Hebrews, chapters three and four. Like I said in the intro, most of the time when modern evangelicals approach the topic of Sabbath, they go straight to the Gospels and look at what Jesus did and what he said about the topic. But we need to understand that Jesus was operating in a world that didn't understand that he was going to die. His own disciples fought against the idea. So when we see Jesus talking about Sabbath with the Pharisees, when we see him attending synagogue on a Saturday because it's the Sabbath, these are all things that some people point to and say, oh, that's applicable for us today, WWJD. What would Jesus do And the only way we can answer that is what did Jesus do? But Jesus had the majority of his ministry in a time before the most important parts of his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so, as we approach the topic of rest, it is vitally important not just to look at what happened in Jesus's life and the context of that, but also what is the API of REST. What is the instruction that the Bible gives after the Pentecost experience? That's the REST API that I'm here to talk about today. It's not a computer thing, although once these episodes get out, look out Google algorithm. I'm attacking you. You're going to put me at the top of your page. So let's just start by saying, as we approach this topic, Sabbath certainly held a great deal of social and historical importance for the Jews of Jesus' day. Their history with the Sabbath, including the events and teaching of the Old Testament, but also the events of the intertestamental period, were very important. And history suggests that a great number of Jews lost their lives because of their refusal to respond to military attacks Made against them on the Sabbath day. And in contrast, other Jews decided to ignore the Sabbath requirements and try to defend themselves in such circumstances. So that was going on in the intertestamental period. And it's that context, that intertestamental context, that is an important backdrop to the cultural conversation within which the first century Jewish community lived. The Sabbath was a highly relevant and culturally complex topic by the time Jesus even entered the conversation. You might remember Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders several times over their observance of the Sabbath, but he also conformed to some of the practices of his day. He regularly went to the synagogue, he read from the scripture, and taught on the Sabbath, And just like any religious institution that gets to exist for a long period of time, there were non-biblical traditions that had become standards of practice which Jesus did not defend. In fact, he would often challenge the spiritual leadership to conform to the biblical standards when they had strayed. Jesus healed many people on the Sabbath a lame man in John 5, a demon-possessed man in Mark 1, Peter's mother-in-law in in Mark 1 as well. There was the man with the deformed hand in Mark 10, a blind man, John 9, a crippled woman, Luke 13, and a man with dropsy, Matthew 27. Each of these healings was considered a Sabbath-breaking violation by the temple leadership. And it was Jesus that challenged the tradition that healing someone could be considered work. (laughs) And how did he do that? He healed many people on the Sabbath. And he asked the Jewish leadership to come to terms with their conclusions in light of Scripture. And they often just bowed away from that because they couldn't scripturally defend their position. And while we often focus on those physical healings provided for us in the stories of the Gospels, we also know that people are not always physically restored to functionality. And even those ones that Jesus did heal, every single one of them ultimately met their death. So the physical healing that we see cannot be the end of the story. But probably more importantly, it is a tangible picture of the restoration of of a spiritual condition. It's the healing of sinful people, and it's that healing that ultimately allows one to experience God's rest. That's the true Sabbath, and Jesus claimed that he was the fulfillment of that idea. So as we just make our way past the Gospels, acknowledging that there's a lot of Sabbath talk and examples within those Gospels, but as we move past those into the API, the After Pentecost Instruction, on the topic of rest, it's going to be important to understand that we're entering into different waters because the API of rest was given to a group of people that at least more fully understood the ministry of who Jesus was and what he was here to do. There are several places in the New Testament that speak to the idea of Sabbath and maybe give us a slightly different understanding of how we should approach it. Paul, who did a lot of traveling and often visited synagogues on the Sabbath, he challenged his readers to see many of the Old Testament practices as they would now be defined by Christ. And it was Paul who specifically presented the Sabbath as a shadow. Colossians 2 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. And then Paul says, But the substance belongs to Christ. And to be clear, sometimes shadows in the Old Testament are referred to positively as a place where one might receive protective shade from the Lord. But in contrast, when used in the sense of foreshadowing, shadows are a flat representation of another idea, one that has substance and form. And we know just from everyday experience that the substance is fuller in its scope and its meaning always. And according to Paul, the substance of the Sabbath's shadow in the New Testament is Christ. This might be a new thought for you, but it's important to remember that shadows in the Old Testament are not the end of the theological truth. They are only something that is supposed to lead people to that which has theological substance. And according to Paul, that's Jesus. And this truth is echoed by the author of Hebrews, who also uses this shadow idea to describe the high priest's service in the tabernacle. Here, let me just read Hebrews 8, 3-5. It says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. This high priest meaning Jesus. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. The author of Hebrews there is talking about the second temple. There were priests on earth offering gifts according to the law at the time the author wrote the book of Hebrews. And then the author makes this point, that those priests working in Herod's temple offering sacrifices, he says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And he continues, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which he has enacted on better promises. So, in the after-Pentecost instruction, In the letter by Paul and in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is clearly identified as the substance that casts the shadow. So, to find the fulfillment of Sabbath rest, one needs to begin by looking to Christ and the spiritual rest that he offers. And unfortunately, today, many congregations, while acknowledging the substance has come, Jesus has done his work. Those congregations still prefer to walk in the familiar comfort of the restful shadow. So let me just say this, and I know I'll be stepping on toes here, but the church will continue to be confused about the Sabbath if it attempts to walk in the presence of the substance, Jesus, but keeps tripping on the shadows. The New Testament authors collectively saw the whole entirety of the Old Testament story as being fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was the fulfillment of the story, and everything before him was pointing to his ministry and his work. So we've done a a little bit of recap here at the beginning of this episode and just trying to lay a groundwork that when we enter into the discussion of Sabbath, we've got the Old Testament context. Certainly important to understand the Old Testament context. We have the intertestamental period that, at least for the first century Jews that Jesus was instructing, they had the most recent history in their minds people dying on Sabbath for either deciding to observe it and not fight, or people going against the idea and fighting. Jesus walked into that environment. He corrected some things. He challenged thinking on some things. But most importantly, he claimed to be the Lord of this idea. He is the Lord of rest, and it's his rest that he offered in the Gospels that I think is more fully developed in the REST API. When we get into the after Pentecost instruction of REST, we begin to see this idea of shadows and that Jesus being the substance is the one that cast the shadows back into the Old Testament. So it's not necessarily about taking a day off from all work. Jesus is offering something better something that has theological substance, it's a better rest than the Old Covenant could ever offer. And there is one place that we have to talk in great detail about when it comes to rest API. And those are the chapters of Hebrews 3 and 4. I believe these two chapters in Hebrews present the principal New Testament theology on the subject of rest. So in regards to API, this is the gold standard. It's the longest and the most in-depth presentation on the topic. So we'll spend the next few episodes on this topic, but for now, let's just walk through these two chapters, get a little more acquainted with them, and then we're going to dive down the rabbit hole and (laughs) going to take you to places you didn't know existed. And we're going to go in there and try and figure out the theological significance of what the author of Hebrews is trying to make. What is the point that this author wants to make regarding the rest that's available to believers today? So, when we dive into Hebrews chapter 3, it begins in the first six verses comparing Jesus to Moses. And surprise, surprise, Jesus is superior to Moses. which seems pretty obvious to us, modern-day evangelicals, but in a Hebrew context into which this was written, that would have been radical. So, in these first six verses, the author establishes the superiority of Jesus over Moses. While Moses faithfully served in God's house, Jesus is depicted as the son who reigns over God's house. This comparison highlights Jesus' exalted position and his authority. Then, after that is established, in verses 7 through 19, there's a warning against unbelief. Now, the book of Hebrews has several warning passages, and not to go into great detail, but there's some debate out there as to who is being warned in these passages— Are these believers that are being warned, and if so, is the suggestion that believers can lose their salvation? Or are these false believers that are being warned that if they don't shape up and believe correctly in Jesus, they're going to miss out on eternity with him? So there's that debate about the polemics in the book of Hebrews, the warning passages. And here is one, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. It recounts the Israelites' rebellion in the wilderness, so they're going back into the Old Testament, and it's highlighting their unbelief and their disobedience. We're going to walk in detail in this in future episodes. And it's here where the author cautions the reader of the book of Hebrews not to harden their hearts like the Israelites did in the Old Testament and fall into the same pattern of unbelief. That's the warning. They are urged to remain steadfast in their faith and not to allow unbelief to hinder them from entering God's rest. What rest is that? Well, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 talks about the promise of rest. It introduces the concept as a promise from God. The author reminds the reader of God's promise of rest that was made in the Old Testament. And the author particularly references Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And while reading it, you get the sense that this rest goes way beyond physical rejuvenation. It encompasses a spiritual rest, and it arises from a deep relationship with God. Within the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 4, we find faith and rest Being emphasized as working together. Hebrews 4.2 emphasizes that the promise of rest is received through faith. And the example given are those Israelites who failed to enter God's rest due to their unbelief, their lack of faith. It's here where the author encourages the readers to combine their hearing of God's word with faith. And if they do that, they will be enabled to enter into God's rest. And just as a side note, I find this very interesting because a lot of people believe in their heart of hearts that when we come to an initial faith experience, that that is entering into God's rest, that that's what the Bible's talking about. So initial faith equals God's rest. We've all entered into it, in other words, when we come to initial faith. But the book of Hebrews encourages the reader to combine their hearing of God's word with faith. And when we do that, when we hear God's word and we combine it with an established faith, it seems to suggest that there's a rest that's available to us in that process. And very interesting then in verses 3 through 11, the author connects the promise of rest to the concept of the Sabbath. It's here where the parallel between God's rest on the seventh day of creation and the invitation for believers to enter into God's rest is established. And I've been arguing over the last several episodes that it's this rest that God is offering, API, that signifies an ongoing and ultimately an eternal state. It's a symbol of the cessation of one's own work and finding completeness in God's work. And what work is that? It's not all of God's work. It's finding completeness in God's work when he established order and purpose within the universe. To round out Hebrews' discussion on rest, Jesus then is discussed as the source of rest. Verses 14 through 16 points to Jesus as the high priest who empathizes with our human weaknesses, and that he became the ultimate source of rest for believers. It's in these two chapters that the author acknowledges the origin of the Sabbath going back to the creation event, that seventh day. And even this argument within the book, it hints at a spiritual fulfillment beyond any physical observance that we might associate with it. So how do we get more clarity on what it is that the author of Hebrews is really trying to get at? Where we'll be going in the next couple, three episodes, we're going to notice where the author of Hebrews takes us back into the Old Testament. We're going to just track that down. Uh, Not in a cursory manner, we're going to track it down in a little more detail. We've done some of this work on previous episodes already. We've taken a look at the first and second chapters of Genesis and what rest may have meant in that context. We'll review that, but it's the Psalm 95 reference that really the first time I started studying Hebrews chapters three and four, it was Psalm 95 that threw me for a loop. I didn't know what to expect. And when I got there, I wasn't quite sure where I had landed and it took me several weeks to to wade through the translation and the different types of Bibles they may have been using at the time in an attempt to get to the point that the author of Hebrews was trying to convey to the original audience. That's the journey I hope to take you on in the next few episodes. I do talk about this journey back into the Old Testament in two chapters in my book, Rethinking Rest. So if you've got a copy of that, you can kind of preview, follow along as we dive down there, but I'm, I'm actually going to be bringing more information into the discussion here on the podcast than I was able to do in the book. So I'm really excited about it. This is where the Bible nerd in me gets a chance to bring you along down rabbit holes that you never knew existed. And I'm so excited. That's all I got for today, but I'm so excited about getting into the book of Hebrews and taking you along with me. Don't forget to get onto Facebook. You might have to create a new account if you're under 25 and look for that John H. Walton discussion group. I'd love to have you join and enter a discussion in that forum. John's got a lot of good work that he's done, a lot of ways that he's blown people's minds out of traditional ways of thinking and challenge them to think, what else might the biblical text be trying to tell us? Oh, and if I haven't said it recently, who do you know that may need to listen to what you just listened to? If somebody's coming to mind, would you mind telling them about the Rethinking Scripture podcast?